This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 26, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. According to Washington elites, revolutions in information, transport, and weapons technologies have shrunk the world, creating both new risks and opportunities for American power. Patrick Porter's new book, The Global Village Myth, takes aim at conventional thinking about the projection of power around the world. We spoke today. When did we start seeing uh, the use of unmanned vehicles to fight on our behalf? Certainly the United States dominates in that area, but when did that really come about? Well, it's long in the making. I mean, the the imagination of of remotely piloted vehicle, I probably should call them because there's – it's actually a highly manned uh, device. In fact, they're more manned than an F-16 if you look at the actual crew that oversees these things. But it's, it's an idea that, like a lot of H.G. Wells is writing, that it anticipates a lot of things decades in advance. So it's been there in the literature for a long time. But I think the real impetus was uh, the coming together of the ability to do it, plus the desire, the political desire to wage war, war from a remove without the costs of large-scale expeditionary uh, military efforts. And what what has been the, the you talked about the political desire to do it, that's uh, expediency and doing what we do in the United States, which is send our power around the globe and uh, try to, uh, if cajoling doesn't work to get people to behave the way the United States wants, we send force. So I guess what have been, what have been the, the chief benefits of of drones? Well, well, the, the benefit is that uh, it, it's it's a the benefit. Sorry, the benefit of the drone simply is that one can project power with much less risk of, of one's own human life and casualties. Uh, it, it's cheaper. Uh, it can be done from a very distant location, um, and it has become a very attractive policy tool, which is one of the reasons it's quite seductive and can be quite misleading. It makes war look easy. How have uh policymakers been misled specifically? I think the seduction of the drone is that it makes you think that you can overcome the difficulties of distance. And that isn't entirely the case. There are a lot of dilemmas with projecting power in this way. For example, if you use the drone to bring force to a remote area without boots on the ground, you lack information and an agile enemy can and will uh, make it look like you killed a lot of civilians very quickly, and it's very difficult to verify. Right. So that's one thing. So there's a propaganda war problem. Secondly, policymakers, I think, are being led to believe that the future looks like the present. That you're, you're using drones in an empty sky, an American sky, but drones are proliferating. It won't always be the case necessarily that they'll be so easy to deploy. Iran might get them. China might get them. You might actually get sort of drone clashes. And Iran has them now. Iran has them now. And uh, I think by making it easier to project force, one can easily forget just a lot of the political uh, costs of, of assassinations. I'm, I'm not a hardcore on this. I think there is a, there's probably a role for a judicious selective use when you're trying to um, disrupt a terrorist network. I'm hardly a drone disarmer, but I think sometimes... The, the ease with which one can reach for the drone trigger can make one think less about the consequences, uh, like of, of a signature strike, for example. As far as uh, President Obama has been uh, prolific in uh, in using drones, far and away more than uh, President Bush, um, and I, I, 
do you suspect that there has been essentially a wholesale replacement of what we would expect as Americans in terms of due process? I think the issue of due process and authorization is much deeper than that, that with or without drones. There is a real problem with what they call the imperial presidency and what is supposed to be the, the constitutional way of making war versus how it actually works. I should say, by the way, that another reason drones are attractive on a very practical level is they, they allow one to loiter, to gather information and, and to kind of hang around in a way that um, a fast jet can't. There's, there's a, there's a, there is an information dimension to this as well. This is not purely an, an armed creature in the sky. This is, a, this is an, an eye, a, a global scan. But just getting back to this point about constitutionality and due process, uh, without being too much of an expert on the legal side of this, uh, I think it, it does concentrate this power in the, in the hands of the president that is difficult to make um, rigorous and accountable. But I think there's a lot of consent and, and agreement behind that. Like, it's not as though the president is doing this against vast forces of opposition. And how one would do this more carefully, more democratically under time pressure is a whole other policy question, which is very difficult to resolve. My, sen my sense is, though, that this weapon is seducing a political class into believing that, for the time being, that um, war can be made easy. That's, that's the real problem. You make a point in your book that I don't think is very well uh, understood or at least appreciated by the broad public, and that is the uh, collateral damage mm. of using drones versus some more traditional means of uh, executing uh, hostilities. Uh, and how, how has the Pentagon dealt with that, and what do you think that the public understands about that? Well, I think the, the main way of handling it is, is, is to point out, often rightly, that, that some very high-value and medium-level value targets are being killed. It's a very, it is a very effective killing device. I mean, as, well as, as well as the issue of collateral damage, there's the issue that it's actually those who are actually in charge of operating these things are suffering very high levels of stress, that it's not the case that this is an immaculate thing. Um, like people playing a video game. Actually, the level of both man hours and the strange existence of going home and then commuting into a place where you're suddenly responsible for um, uh, using, commanding this weapon and maybe even some accidentally killing your own people in, in a broom of video screens and then going back home again, that in some complex way is causing a lot of PTSD. So th there's another sense in which that you're not exactly just distant from the battlefield. You're not morally and emotionally distant from the battlefield. You're actually very intimate with what you're doing. So I keep, I keep running away from the question and coming back to it. But your question about how, how is the Pentagon handling it, I, I don't know in detail what, how the Pentagon's handling that issue that I just mentioned. Uh, but you've, no, you've you noted in your book that they revealed uh, very tellingly yeah. that um, the, the risk of civilian casualties per engagement is higher with... Uh, using these drones than in uh, traditional means. Well, and that may be a product of the willingness to use them, if, if, if that makes sense. That, that there's a higher chance of civilian casualties because there's a lower threshold in their own minds for using them versus actually using some other means. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that the idea that you've got them fixed in a very precise frame and then can zero in and, and do the kill means that one may be tempted to use them more often than one otherwise would than, say, a long-range 500-pound bomb from something else. So, I mean, a bit, but yeah. it speaks to the broader issue yeah. that, that you lay out, which is the seduction of, yeah. uh, of, of sort of an immaculate war machine yeah. where 
Americans are not placed at risk, where there are political costs to to doing it. So, so how does that get resolved? I, I, obviously, we're as you note, we're we're new to this, relatively speaking, as as a means of warfare. So, uh, w- without skin in the game, it seems like a very dangerous uh, technology to be. Uh, deploying so quickly and rapidly well it may not be resolved here in America it may be it may be it, the game may change when others proliferate when when drones spread on the ability to shoot drone, shoot drones down they're not that act difficult to shoot down once you've got their technology so one one broader point in my book is that a lot of military capabilities are diffusing or at least technologies are diffusing and and effectively the net effect of that is to enlarge the world strategically making it harder to project power that could also happen here in that sense whether there would be some other cause of a change, a political cause or a protest or something more skeptical about. I mean, I think that the United States is in a continuing competition with a range of Islamist groups of different kinds in different parts of the world, and at the moment is very reluctant to send in large numbers of people on the ground to deal with it. Having gone through Iraq and the, 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 the distress of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but there's also the pressure to be a strong leader in, the, in a state of emergency. And America, is, in, in a sense, has been in a continuous state of declared emergency since 2001. So this thing could go on and on. What I think could change it is when others adapt. Other countries, other countries having are other drones actors. or anti-air Both. capabilities. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I don't think America would give up drones then, but it would just change the nature of the competition. One of the points that you made both in your talk and in, in your book is that the United States, uh, and this sounds paradoxical, that we are less powerful than we think we are, but we're also safer than we think we are. And it, it's, it's a very interesting uh, thought that uh, our inability to project power uh, in the precise ways that we would like to without uh, collateral damage is the same problem that other countries yes. will soon face. And or, other, or and do other face. actors, yeah. Yeah, that there is a general problem with power projection at affordable cost, and this affects other countries as well. And that is, is one potential source of American security. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not of the school that says that all of this is, is completely inflated, that there is no security threat. I, I, like I said in the talk, I. I gravitate around quite boring policy positions, quite gradual, quite incremental, quite moderate, down the middle, but it's about the nature of the security environment America inhabits and shares with other people, and if the nature of that environment is to make it actually much harder to do either a mass casualty terrorist attack or an amphibious invasion, uh, or to uh, send troops into a country on the cheap to fix it, uh, there is a common problem but that is also a basis on which you can draw some calmness and some proportionality, really. It's really about the proportionality of the way we frame the debate. So should the United States remain this uh, dominant power? I mean, given the history and the, uh, the fears of a power vacuum that, uh, that you talk about following World War, World War II and uh, being drawn into uh, Korea and Vietnam, should the United States continue to... to to try to have that position? I think the United States should continue to be one of the heavyweights. Uh, it's difficult to imagine a country with 300 million people, all that dynamism and wealth and experience to draw upon 
and the one is the country that's still making babies is holding together that is a huge part of the international economy. I can't imagine that not being a heavyweight power. It's a question of on what terms and along with who else as well. I, I think uni, the unipolarity, the kind of the standalone liberal sort of hegemonic leader of the 1990s time is sort of passing if it hasn't passed already. I think that my, I'm fond of imagining the contrast between what, what happened in 1996 when in response to Chinese aggression and Taiwan Strait, the president sent in a carrier battle group uh, swiftly, quickly, decisively. I'm not sure an American president would do that now without thinking twice or even three times because there are difficulties now with doing that and the risks that aren't there before. I think that is a measure of the extent to which the era of, of overwhelming dominance, if there ever was one, has passed. The, 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 really, the really important question, though, is on what terms should America try and exist as, if you like, a first among equals? It'll be one of the big heavyweights, unless something really, really bad happens. Who knows? But it'll be one of the big heavyweights for a long time. And working out the terms of engagement and the terms of collaboration and uh, coexistence, I think that's that's the really crucial thing. And the rhetoric of leadership, as it is currently cast, doesn't really uh, allow for that. It seems like there's a pretty basic incentive problem among political elites and policymakers where it is they're strongly drawn to methods that uh, don't necessarily produce uh, a better world, but do produce a better short-term political outcome. I mean, that seems to be the intractable Particularly problem. since 9-11, the state of emergency, the politics of the state of emergency, the, the understandable obsession amongst politicians to strengthen their right flank, their national security flank all the time, to, be, to look very tough and to say very tough things both about American security and about things like Israel and things like that. I mean, there is a very strong incentive to do that, uh, which is interesting as well because actually the, if the American people as a mass are uh, not nearly as enthusiastic about continual engagement everywhere. I don't think they're all isolationists or anything, but there's, there is a degree of fatigue and scepticism about the burden America is on America's shoulders. But within the, within the political class and the wider foreign policy establishment, there is a very strong pressure to be seen to be endorsing one particular vision of American leadership at all times, and that that does stifle a proper debate about what to do. And even if you're in favour of that, it should be debate about specifics and how that's effectively carried out. And I think partly as well what we've had here is since 1950 at least, a long built up tradition and habit over generations now of thinking about America in these terms. So it's not easy to actually start unpacking and rethinking that, identi that identity as the, as the guardian of the world order. Because for a long time, I mean, America, in a very real sense, did save a lot of the world after World War II in the sense of you know, rebuilding Europe, the prosperity of the Pacific Rim countries, um, overseeing resistance to Soviet expansionism, all of those kind of things. Um, it, was a, an it was an indispensable player. The, 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 the trap is in imagining that the world is and will always be like it was in 1950 with those conditions, and those conditions that may not be there anymore. Actually, we've got a different kind of world, which will always, I think, will always need an American heavyweight in it, but where you've got the growth of a lot of other powers and who can do a lot of things themselves. That's, it's really that, that pressure of time. You talk about uh, Al-Qaeda and its attempts to, if not project uh, power directly, at least project that image, mm. and... Um, sort of disseminating itself, trying to create a vast network uh, like uh, any major military power that created its own set of problems uh, that have 
uh, stymied a lot of the effort for uh, a well-coordinated global jihad. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yes. I think, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with al-Qaeda and the future is unwritten, but al-Qaeda, as I argue, found itself lost in space, that it was ultimately a self-defeating movement uh, that, first of all, got its main targets real hostile attention, which made things more difficult for it in terms of operating uh, and being able to do the kinds of things that were done on 9-11 and before then. Uh, even allowing for all their ability to capitalise on anti-American sentiments, the, by the 9-11 attack created a new environment in which slowly but surely the, the, the noose started being tightened around it. But secondly, Al-Qaeda then turned into a decentralised sort of network, which was imposed upon it, by the way, after the American counter-strike in Afghanistan, that Al-Qaeda had to flee and become something else, which was this decentralised network where there was a kind of, however you want to call it, a franchise model or whatever, but there was an Al-Qaeda core, but there was lots of other peripheral groups which were only under loose control, loose inspiration. And that meant that they started doing very undisciplined things like butchering Muslims indiscriminately, the things that the core couldn't really handle. If you read the correspondence between uh, Zarqawi, Al-Qaeda's number two, and... and uh, um, Sorry, uh, Zawahiri, Al-Qaeda's number two, and Abu Zakawi in Iraq, the kind of despair of what had happened to the brand, to the, to the, to the, to the movement, as a result of what Al-Qaeda was up to in, in Anbar, places like that in Jordan and things like that. So I think whatever else happens, uh, this is a movement that is struggling um, to live up to its own strong ambitions, which was to take the war to the far enemy, to bring it down and to... I mean, it has. I think it has though, successfully baited America into doing a number of things to hurt itself. But in a sense, that means we have a lot of we, the you know, U.S.-led West, have a lot of control over how we respond. It, I think Al Qaeda is dangerous not because of its material capabilities, but because of its ability to bait a Western overreaction, a Western self-defeating response. So we need to be disciplined. And I think we also need to have a stronger sense of our own resilience. Winston Churchill said during World War II, when London was being bombed, he said, "Well, London can take it." We don't like it, but we can take it. And I think sometimes we talk as though we're so brittle we can't take any any aggression. And I think actually we can. And a little bit of quiet toughness would be good. Patrick Porter is author of The Global Village Myth, Distance, War and the Limits of Power. You can watch a discussion of the book at our website, cato.org.